today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Especially in the world we live in now with all kinds of international stories and international politics uh, going on, you may watch your own uh, local newscast and see uh, your favorite reporter reporting from all over the world and uh, and getting jobs in, in, in places like London or Los Angeles or where have you. We're going to talk to a former reporter who was a former correspondent, a former foreign correspondent, and has written a book on this experience, Falling for London, a Cautionary tale, a hilarious, touching, and globe-trotting look inside the life of a foreign correspondent. This is almost being this is almost like being James Bond. Uh, to talk uh, about all of this, author Sean Mallon is with us, former foreign correspondent, and on the line with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. We got him? Sean, are you I there? Thought, oh, okay, we got I you now. here. All right, so why the book, Sean? Why the story? Well, there's a story behind the story. And the story is being a foreign correspondent as a reporter is is the dream job, especially in a place like London. I wanted that kind of job ever since ever since I first visited London back in the seventies and fell in love with the place and what's not to fall in love with. It's such you know an extraordinary, fascinating, historical, endlessly interesting place. And as a reporter for many years, there's no better job. Right? So I thought that these opportunities were passing me by, though. I had a great career with Global, covered Queen's Park, went coast to coast to coast, all kinds of interesting stories. But the foreign jobs kept passing me by until, in 2011, unexpectedly, it fell into my lap. I got it. I was going to be the new Europe bureau chief for Global News, and I was told I had to move within a couple of weeks to cover the royal wedding of uh, Prince William and, uh, and Kate Middleton. So on the outside, you might say, great. Congratulations, hop on a plane, go have a great time. But, and this is a central theme of the book, it's not always that simple because there are other people affected by a decision like that. In this case, my wife. How difficult is it to have to make a decision like this at this stage of your, or that stage of your career? Because again, we all remember what it was like when we were young and full of P&V and we could pack up and just go like that wherever we had to go. Then comes the family. How does that complicate things? Well, it complicates things greatly because you're right. In my single days, you know, I would have been on the first taxi to the airport. But I was asking my wife and daughter to give up a lot. Uh, my wife had a, had a great job that she excelled at, that she loved. My daughter was only six, and I was asking them both to move to a city they'd never seen before, to give up everything they knew. And initially, they really didn't want to go. And you know what? If you think about it, you can't really blame them yeah. because I get the great job, but they've got to find their way in a new city. But um, And here's the, the long way around to, to the way this, this book happened was that finally, and to their great credit, Isabel and Julia said, okay, let's do this. Uh, but I had to go first, and on the day I was hopping on the taxi to head up to the airport to take, my, take up my new job, Isabella handed me, my wife handed me a journal and said, you know what? If you're going to put us through this, you better write a book. And, uh, <laughs> it, it was a very wise and generous observation. So I filled that journal. I filled two others, and uh, it, it uh, the story unfolded in many ways that I could not have expected. It's London's an amazing place, but it has its challenges. You know, we had the ceiling fall in on one of our flats on us. Our flat that cost about two and a half times a month in rent what our mortgage was in our nicely renovated mm. landscape house in Toronto. So it, it turned out to be a wonderful adventure. And you know what? It was so much better having 
my family along because it led to so many terrific relationships and so many adventures that I never could have happened on my own. I mean, the work always would have been great. The stories were amazing. I was there through an incredible arc of uh, of stories, but um, but the personal family experience and all the people we met, the many other people who were uh, had spouses who were taken away from their from their lives, mm. that all made it all a lot more special. So, how long were you actually there? Twenty eight months. 28 months, and a lot happened in those 28 months. I mean, it started with the Royal Wedding. I was there through the riots, through the mm. London Olympics. I covered Putin's uh, election, so-called election, in 2012. I was there for the Pope, the cho- choosing of a new Pope. Um, Paris, London, Rome, Moscow, Johannesburg. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was quite a run. How was this gig different than you thought it would be? The reporting part was actually pretty much the way I'd expected. You know the stories are going to be incredible, and you have the luck of the draw about what kind of uh, stories are going to be unfolding during the time you're there. It was the family side that was really unexpected. And there is a, there's a term I learned when I, I moved to London. It's called trailing spouse. And trailing spouse refers to the spouse who gives up her, and it's always, almost always the wife, gives up her job, her career, sets it aside at least, to follow the husband, usually, who gets this incredible promotion. And we met so many incredible people. There was an opera singer from Australia. There was a chef from Calgary. There was a, uh, a uh, food writer from uh, New Jersey. All of these people have remained tremendous friends. And the unexpected part was seeing how you could pull your life together, build a new life, largely led by my wife and daughter, to to make your time in this incredible city uh, a really special time. How old was your daughter when you were there? Six. She was six when we got the job. So and, what was it like for her during that period of her life to live there? Well, kids are remarkably resilient, yeah. you know, and... She uh, she struggled a bit initially, but she, she made me so proud. And when you read the book, and I'll be sending you a copy, her journey is probably the most inspiring of all. Because on the first day of school there, she had to go move go from a, an Ontario public school over to an all-girls school in London called the Royal School Hampstead, where she had to wear a uniform, all girls. And on the first day of class, who can blame her? She's standing in the schoolyard there, weeping, saying, "Saying, you know, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. <laughs> and who stepped forward but another little Canadian girl who we'd happened to meet beforehand and said, uh, Julia, I'll take your hand. And I'm like, oh, wow. a savior. And the, the staff, I mean, London, London can be a tough place, but we met so many kind and wonderful Londoners. And the staff and the teachers at that school were just extraordinary in helping her get through it. And so she, she adapted. She was crying on that first day, and there were some other tears in the first couple weeks. You know, she didn't know how to navigate a cafeteria, especially where they served something called jacket potatoes. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, baked potatoes, by our, by our term, uh, which she now loves, by the way. And uh, I won't give away the ending, but by the end of it, uh, it ends on the last day of school at the Royal School. Um, she does something that just melted my heart and still gives me uh, goosebumps even now as I think about it. About I, the I don't know but, what I don't know what it is, but I'm already getting goosebumps just listening to your your tone of voice on this. It's uh, it it was a, an example of a six year old by that time she was seven, 
not only coming through and succeeding, but really prevailing and stepping up at a key moment there to make uh, to make quite a performance hmm. uh, on the last day of school. Is it easier to do the the physical job itself over and above the family stuff? Is it easier to do this because you're moving to a completely different city, a completely different? I mean, the culture is the same, but it's, every big city like this is different in a sense. Is it easier to report because you know who you're talking to? You're not reporting to them; you're reporting to us back here. Exactly. That was the easy part. That's what I. I, I it just fit me like a glove. It's what I always wanted to do. It, it felt it felt right from day one. And although I have to say, doing a sign-off with my name saying Global News London, you know, yeah. you, you, you do your sign-off, and then the camera turns off, and you go, yes. Mm. And you have to say sign-off Moscow or Paris or, uh, or Rome. So, yes, because, of course, you're, you're, you're interpreting international stories for a Canadian audience. So that's no different, and that was completely natural. And, and in addition... I was working in the coolest place. We had uh, it's the same bureau now for Global. It's in a place of North London in uh, called the Camden Market. If you know London at all, it's a mm-hmm. it's a rocking, rolling, wacky place. And we had uh, a converted uh, uh, storage closet. Our, our elegant Europe bureau chief, yeah, Europe bureau for Global National yeah. News, was a converted closet. But it was in the Associated Press building, right in the middle of this really colorful, fascinating place. I mean, the Russians were next door, the Mexicans around the corner, Chinese across the hall, Japanese around the hall. Um, it was a, they, were, they were renting out uh, spaces to a whole raft of international journalists who we'd pass in the hall all the time. So it was just endlessly interesting. And just outside the office, uh, there was a courtyard just below uh, called the West Yard. If you ever go to London, go to the Camden Town Market, go to the West Yard. It is uh, an ever-changing array of the best street food from around the world. Mm. So for my lunches, I'd step out and, okay, is today is it an Argentinian steak sandwich? Is it a Turkish wrap? Is it Persian? Is it Thai? Is it Jamaican? You know, I'll never work in a cooler place. What's it like to hang with other foreign correspondents that are doing the same thing and transplanted like you are? There's kind of a camaraderie about it, you know, especially when you go off um, to cover a big story where there's a real gathering of international types. Because, again, you're all, you're all in the same boat, and the majority of them were smaller players. I mean, Global's got a substantial presence, but on the international scene, you know, the big players are the big American networks, or yeah. the BBC, or, uh, or you know, the Chinese, or many others that are bigger than us. But there's a whole raft just below that of people who are national reporters in their own right and substantial audience, and Global has a substantial audience uh, for Global National News, who are really just, in our case, a reporter and a cameraman. And and you're often in the same boat. You're often trying to find your way how to cover a giant story with a whole bunch of other people. For example, covered in uh, January of 2012, we went off to Italy, the Tuscan coast, to cover the wreck of the cruise ship, the Costa Concordia. Oh, right. Remember that story? Yeah. It was an incredible, incredible, heartbreaking scene. But we all poured into this tiny village on the Tuscan coast trying to get out to the island of Giglio, where the uh, Costa Concordia went ashore. And it's off-season. There's this ferry that goes once a day, but you've got 
literally hundreds of reporters there. And so what would happen on an impromptu basis is you'd get together, you'd find a boat, you'd split the costs, and you'd go across to the island. So I think that when we made it across, I think we were sharing it with a Swedish, Australian, Japanese, and oh, a half dozen other international reporters. So we all said, okay, how many, how many euros have you got? And let's, uh, let's divvy it up and let's hire this guy to, uh, to get us across to the island to cover this incredible story. So yeah, there's, there's a kind of camaraderie. And you all know that you're so lucky to have this opportunity to attend these extraordinary events. And, uh, and you help each other, too. You get tips about, hey, you know, there's someone interesting to talk to just standing over there. You might want to go ask them. So, uh, I can't let you go without asking you this question. Um, it, it seems that we live in a different world now, uh, even since you were there, uh, with that of President Donald Trump and the attacks on the media. Do you find the attitude towards media is different now? It's been getting worse. For quite some time, um, I mean, I go back to covering international stories back into the 80s, where I never covered war right front up, right up front, like covering the, you know, with the flak jacket and all the rest of it. But it was in occasional situations where you describe it as social unrest. And in those days, reporters were not exactly given a pass, but they weren't necessarily targets. And even in my time, um, again, I didn't cover war, but reporters increasingly were starting to become targets. And now what's happened in the United States, in particular led by the president, um, is a really unfortunate and I think dangerous to democracy uh, trend of, of considering the reporters, in his unfortunate words, the enemy of the people. And that doesn't suit any of us. I mean, the, the Trump story is, I covered a lot of politics. I covered Queen's Park for many years, lots of national elections, interviewed lots of politicians. And that scene yesterday um, where he faced off with Jim Acosta, right. I mean, I mean, Acosta's, but for TV reporters, there's all a certain, always a certain amount of ego. And there's, even though they're good reporters and solid, maybe there's a little bit of showboating. But if you listen to the content of his question, it was a perfectly logical and fair question. Yeah. Nothing wrong with this question at all. Was it tough? Yeah. But it was right on point. And the President of the United States just insulted him, interrupted him, insulted him, called him an enemy of the people, called him fake news, uh, which is a horrible and false and scurrilous accusation that does incredible damage to the democratic process. And to his credit, and it's a brave thing to do because, you know, he's going to get threats online and on social media. Costa stood up there and tried to answer his questions. And then Peter Alexander, you probably saw for yeah. NBC, right after followed up, said something supportive of Acosta, tried to get his questions in, suffered almost as bad insults from this, from this president. And then Acosta gets his press pass pulled yeah. because he asked a tough question. That's just over the top. I was kind of surprised, and, and it was great that that NBC por uh, reporter stuck up for uh, Acosta, but on the other hand, I was surprised the rest didn't stand up and just ask the same question over and over again. Well, you have to remember, in, that, in those kinds of situations, I, I mean, I, I covered the White House briefly, but never on these giant kind of news conferences, and certainly never with a character like Trump, but I've been at big, big news conferences, and you have to remember that it's a rare opportunity, and everybody wants to get their question in. This, right. is, this is the thing about the news yeah. media and the thing about a diverse news media. It's competitive when it's done right, 
everyone has to a certain extent their own agenda there's some you know agenda questions that everybody wants to ask but it's it's important that everyone everyone in that audience you can imagine how pumped they are uh, considering the times, considering it's Trump, considering this giant event that's just happened, everybody wants to get their question in. Yeah. And they're not thinking so much of, you know, they might be sympathetic, but they're also doing their job mm. and saying, okay, well, well, that was interesting, but I've got a question to get in, Mr. President, Mr. President, I have this right. question for you, I have this yeah. question for you. But, but uh, it was quite a, a disturbing scene to see, and that other question with that woman, I, I don't recall her name, who yeah. asked the question. Again, a perfectly legitimate question about him claiming to be a nationalist. And, she ca- and, and he called her a racist. racist yeah. Called it a racist question. That's, that's extraordinary. It's horrible and sad how he gets away with it, and ha- sad about how many of his supporters buy it, no matter how much he lies and says the sun rises in the West and sets in the East. You know, his own people, so many people still believe it. That's, that is what is, what is so disturbing. All right, last question for you, Sean. Uh, with the book out and such, what does the family think? How do they feel when they look back on this experience? Well, you know, the arc of the story is, and again, this is just the first year of our first, of our two years there, but you get a sense of it by the end that the two women who didn't initially want to go, by the end of it, they didn't want to come home. And it's such a credit for them about how how not only did they learn how to live in London, but to love London and prevail in London because again, it's a it's a challenging place. So it's it's now an indelible part of our lives. We come back, we go back at least every other year. We were back there this past summer, and uh, and um, we love it. Falling for London, a cautionary tale, a hilarious, touching, and globe-trotting look inside the life of a foreign correspondent. And with us has been journalist Sean Mallon, of course, a former Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. Sean, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with this. Thanks very much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.